0: Alright, well, I'd like to say welcome again to Pullman Foursquare Church if you're a guest with us or you've been just a few times and you haven't figured out who's who. I'm Pastor Jamie. My wife is Pastor Heidi over there. We don't call each other pastor at home because that's weird. Um, yeah, Pastor Heidi, would you please pass the butter? Yeah, we don't do that. So we, we just call each other Jamie and Heidi and you can call us whatever you would like. You know, we're not like going to stand on tradition or anything like that. Uh, But we are very uh, honored to be the pastors here at this church uh, because God is doing something spectacular here and working in people's hearts and lives and transforming and shaping people in ways that that just explore us every time we hear about them. So we are just honored to be a part of that work and a part of uh, this church. Uh, We finished up last week a series called The God I Wish You Knew, and uh, we're going to jump into a new series this week, which we are calling The Elephant in the Room. And uh, well, what, what it means when we're starting a new series is that our sermon groups are open again. And so I just want to make you aware that we have groups that meet each week to discuss the sermon uh, throughout the week. They happen on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And I think there's a Friday group as well. And so there's more information on the back table on that. And you could uh, jump in one of those groups at any time. But it's a great way to get connected to our church. So I just wanted to let you know about those. Um, but, so today we're going to start our series, The Elephant in the Room. And I kind of let you know last week that it's about the book of Titus. And uh, really, we're going to be talking about politics from the book of Titus. And it is like, yeah, right? Have you ever experienced an elephant in the room? Anybody here ever experienced an elephant in the room? Like, okay, so here's a good example. Let's say you take out uh, your dream date. Now, for me, that'd be taking out my wife. Uh, But you've got your dream date, and you go out to dinner, and you sit down to the meal, and you go through the first course, because this is how fancy the meal is, right? Every both dressed up. You're, Doug, you're wearing a tie. And he's like, he's like, whoa, man. Yeah, it got, it got real serious just now. And so you're just up, you're, you're, you're in this, and it's a super fancy restaurant. And you go through the first course. And of course, your, your, your fancy date, she, she picks a, uh, or he, if you're a, a female, um, she picks a, a spinach salad, and she eats her salad. And you're talking and you ask her this important question or you tell her a joke. Let's say you tell her a funny joke and she looks up at you and there is a giant piece of spinach on her tooth. Giant piece of spinach right there on her tooth, right? Elephant in the room right there, right? What do you do? Do you say something and like totally embarrass her? You wait for the, the, the waiter to come by, I almost called him an usher. You wait for the waiter to come by and you know take the plate and before you say something, you're like, you do you, you the little hand motions, like, you know, or, or I like the really passive version, you know, the really passive version. It's like where you start like this and then you kind of scratch your tooth, like just pretend that you've maybe got something and it makes them think, you know, that's a good way. My preferred way is to just, my preferred way is just to face the elephant, right? I just like, Hey babe, you you got a little something in your tooth and she's like, Oh, and then she takes care of it. And then you don't have to, to, but that's what she's like. Yes, that's what I do. See, I try to tell the truth from up front. Um, that's really good. So you know, that's my preferred way to do it: was to face the elephant. To face the elephant. To get right at right. Just go right to it. So the thing is, though, in the church, there are often elephants in the room. Things that we can't talk about. Things that everybody sees, that everybody knows, and nobody's willing to bring it up because it's really uncomfortable. In a church like this, one of the biggest elephants in the room is politics, because we have people in this room. All the way across the political spectrum from some of the most extreme liberal people I've ever met. No, I'm kidding. You're not here. (laughs) To some of the most crazy conservative people I've ever met. Those people are here. No, I'm kidding. Uh, We're all across the political spectrum. And, And then there are some people that put themselves on one side of the political spectrum, but then they're like, except for on this one issue, I believe God says this, and so I'm over here. And then there's people on this side that are like, except for on this one thing, I believe God says this, and so I'm over here. And we're like in this crazy mix where if people tried to define us as liberal or conservative, they would be stymied every time. I fit in that category. People are like, what are you? I don't know. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like nothing. I'm just a person. And I love God, and I just want to serve God, and I want to vote the way God wants me to vote. We're not going to really talk about Voting, however, today, especially, we're going to talk about something slightly different in terms of politics. So elephant in the room is politics. As I began to prepare for this series, though, and I and I began to talk to people, and I'm like, hey, I, w- I feel like God is, like, moving me to change my, my plan for this fall, because the God I wish you knew was going to go for a couple more weeks, and then I was going to do just a one-week sermon on politics, and, you know, at the end of it, I was going to tell you all how to vote. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't going to do that. I knew a pastor in, in Bellevue that did that. He and he because legally we can't tell you how to vote as a as a nonprofit. If I do that, we violate our nonprofit status and get tax problems. Blah. So what he did is he actually printed out who you should vote for for each issue, and then he had his ushers go and put it on the window of every car in the parking lot. That's just that's just crazy. Okay, that's just crazy. But you know it makes things simple. I don't have to think. Right? I just take it and go and, and vote anyway. So I'm not doing that. I don't, you know, I just don't have to think about anything. I guess, okay, here's my list, and I'll just check, 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 yeah. Um, so as I was talking about this to people, um, the thing that I got back, here was my number one response when talking to people about the sermon series I was going to do. They said, be careful. Now, I got to tell you, that really rubs me the wrong way sometimes. I've got this prophetic bent inside of me that was just like, That's like asking me not to push the red button, right? That's like, don't push the red button. Don't push the red button. I'm like, wait, it's so big. I want to push it, right? It's so big and red. I've got to push this button. It's like this prophetic bent that wants to say, this is how God sees it. And so we got to deal with it like this. But then I have this pastoral heart in me that really just wants us all to get along wants us all to love one another, wants us all just to love and worship Jesus and to grow up in him. And so I've got this tension pulling inside of me that maybe even the pastor even wants to just avoid the subject altogether so that there is no division, so that there is no divide, there is no discomfort in our church. However, I think that preaching on politics and topics like political topics is incredibly necessary if we're ever going to find a way to live under God's sovereignty in every area of our lives. Because much of what we consider political is actually spiritual. And much of what we consider spiritual has political implications. So that if we are ever going to hope to live fully under God's sovereignty in our lives, in other words, we are going to live as children of God, with God as our Father, then we have to deal with political subjects. How many of you are, like, really uncomfortable with that idea? Anybody want anybody, anybody really, like, excited about that idea? Okay, good. good. Any of you didn't want to vote just now, you know, and how many of you don't want to vote later? (laughs) All right, so Christians should always be challenging the scope of the moral concerns represented by their political parties. We should, no matter who you vote for, no matter what, you know, if you, in your primaries, you said Republican or Democrat or Independent, whatever you said, we should always, 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 as Christians, be challenging the moral scope of those political parties. We need to, to approach it with great conviction and with great courage. We need to come into it with great humility and with a great sense of understanding and listening to the voice of God in these things. So today, we are actually going to face the elephant in the room, and we're going to do that for the next four weeks. We're going to face the elephant of politics, and we're going to talk about how the early church dealt with politics and what God thinks about politics. Right now, in case you didn't notice, uh, we're in the middle of a very divisive campaign for president. Uh, if anybody not notice that? Anybody living in a hole without a television or radio or eyes. (laughs) Our country is experiencing a lot of upheaval and a lot of division over just about every topic from from race to immigration to religion to debt, all of these things. And to make matters worse, our political candidates have chosen to engage in a a way of politics where they are actually selling scary stories. They're selling scary stories. You're like, wait a minute, I don't remember anybody telling stories, but they are. Actually, what they're doing is they're giving us bits and pieces of very scary stories. And they're kind of laying them out on a table for you. And and you've got one candidate over here and another candidate over there and a couple of little candidates in the back who are trying to sneak things in too. And they're these really scary stories about what the future is going to look like. And they're like, come sit at the table and choose one. And you fill in your own blanks for your story. It's like a choose your own adventure, right? The choose your own adventure books. And it's like, you've got one candidate saying, hey, if you choose a page, turn to page 37 and you choose that candidate over there, what's going to happen is the economy is utterly going to crash and we're all going to be destitute and poor and the terrorists are going to come into our country. There's going to be millions of them and they're going to overrun and blow everything up. And you have another candidate who's sitting on the other side. is like, no, 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 that's not true. No, but if you elect that candidate, what's going to happen is you've given that candidate the red button, the big red button, and that person's crazy. Have you seen his hair? That person's crazy. And if you give him the big red button, he is likely to push it. These are the stories we're being sold, right? In either case, the outcome is terrible, right? In either case, the outcome is scary and full of fear. This is what our political systems are using today to drive us to the voting booths And to drive us to choose one candidate over another. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, every citizen in our country has been given the right. Actually, I'm going to retract that statement. Has been given the great privilege of voting. We get to choose. But who do we choose? What are we looking for in a leader? Which story do we buy into? Well, that was intense, right? (laughs) Let's all just take a deep breath now, ready? Okay, I'm just gonna take a deep breath because I think that's really what we need to do in the midst of this political system, in the middle of this election. We need to take a deep breath. Relax just a bit. Not too much because I don't want you to fall asleep. And I want to pray and I want to look at God's word and I want to see what God has to say about this stuff. See what God has to say in the midst of this story-selling political... Campaign where we're driven to fear. So let's uh, let's open our Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus. It's a little tiny book toward the back of your Bible. You take a, look, a quick peek back there. Um, I encourage you to bring a paper Bible for this stuff because we are going to be looking at the uh, actual physical text in here. Titus is right after the timothys First and Second Timothy, the, and uh, right before Philemon. Philemon. It's a really short book, just three chapters long. So you know this is going to be a short search but I can drag this thing on. And so while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for us for a moment, and then we'll take a look and uh, read part of the text. Father, I pray that you would, first of all, give me courage, and that you would give me wisdom as I speak this morning. God, I pray that the words that you have already placed into my heart, the concepts and thoughts you've already placed in my heart, and the things that you've been speaking to the church for the last 2,000 years, would be evident and clear to us this morning, and that we would hear your voice, not the voice of a man, not the voice of a pastor, not the voice of a political campaign. But your voice speaking to us this morning. Jesus, give us faith to trust in what you say. Give us faith to believe that you're good. Give us faith to believe that you're in control. And give us faith to believe that in the end, all things will work together for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to read Titus chapter one. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to skip down. I've got stuff falling all out of my Bible. How many of you use a Bible as a purse? Nobody raised their hand. That was me. Okay, so we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then two, two uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And you're going to go, wait, wait, how are you going to come out of a sermon with this? But here we go. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in a hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of God. With which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace, or grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained put what remained into order and appoint leaders in every town as I have directed you. Now pause there. We're going to talk about the next thing next week. We're going to move down to two one. But, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Just stop right there. Now, the reason I wanted to take us to Paul's letter to Titus. Now, this is called the pastoral epistle. Paul being the pastor, writing to a church, but specifically to a, a leader in a church, Titus. The reason I wanted to take us here is because the things that Titus was facing as the pastor of a church in the, in the, the, on the Isle of Crete, which, okay, so let's just get this out in the open now. If you live on the Isle of Crete, you're a Cretan. Just say it. So it was a joke. Did anybody catch that? Did it just like shoot right over the top of your heads there? I just might have. Okay. So if you live on the of Crete, you're a Cretan. And I'll probably say that a few times throughout my message this morning. Um, So he wanted to write to to Titus, who was the pastor of the Cretan church and to the Cretans in the church. How many of you are Cretans in the church? It's going to be fun to use that over and over. So Paul planted this church in Crete. But he wasn't able to stay very long because actually he was a, a political prisoner at this time and on a march to Rome. He was imprisoned twice for his faith and for his preaching and teaching. And both times took him to Rome. The second time led to his beheading. So this is during his first trip. He is under house arrest, going from place to place as they move him toward Rome. He stops in Crete and it's crazy. House arrest back then means that he could go out and preach the gospel and do the very thing that he was imprisoned for, and they didn't mind. And he preached and, and he planted a church in the middle of this place while he was in chains. It was absolutely crazy, totally amazing, totally God's story. So he plants this church in Crete, and then he leaves and takes all of his friends and all the people that planted this church with him. And now they're sitting there, this, this, this group of brand new believers, people that had, had never heard the stories of Jesus, except from Paul, had never like read or learned from the Bible. These guys are Greeks, so they're immersed in Greek philosophy and the Roman gods and all of these things and they're, they're in this little, this little town, and Paul comes, preaches the gospel. They're like, yes, I raise my hand for that sermon, and I give my life to Jesus, and now Jesus is God, and Jesus is amazing, and then Paul leaves, and they're like, I need to know more, and they have to be a church. They have to function as a church. They have to care for widows and orphans. They have to, to have potlucks, and they have to have chili cook-offs, and, and they've got to have somebody preaching each week, and you know, all the things that church does kidding we don't necessarily have to do those things they're fun though and they have to organize and they have to to grow up in their faith but they have no resources to do it they don't have the new testament like we have the new testament they don't even have the old testament like we have the old testament they don't have a bible to work from all they have is the stories and so paul from a distance winds up sending titus back to this church now, Titus was a young man, probably younger than me, in his 20s. He and Timothy were good friends. So Timothy were the other books right before that. And they were protégés of Paul. They were his disciples. He trained them and raised them up. And, and they, they went through the pastoral licensing process like Kristen went to. They didn't have a process then. But they had to learn and they had to understand God's um, story. They understand the story of Jesus and what it meant. And then they, Paul sent them out. So Paul sends Timothy into this young church that is struggling and they don't know what's going on. And when Timothy gets there, he finds out that some people had taken these stories and actually twisted it and turned them for their own benefit. And they'd created this, this false teaching. And so people were really confused. Like, I thought I was saved by grace, but now we're saying that I have to work. Or, or um, I thought that I was saved because Jesus died for me, but now you're saying it's because I know something that Jesus knows, the Gnostic gospel. And there's this whole mess there. Titus has got to go in here and, and clean up the mess. And on top of all that, this church, the Cretian church, was ruled by Rome. And Rome said that you have to worship in certain ways at certain times, and specifically certain gods, and specifically, even more than that, you have to worship Caesar. Caesar is a god. He is the son of God. Funny language to be using for a Roman emperor when Jesus said he was the son of God, or maybe Jesus stole that language. But, so the Roman emperor says, I am the son of God, and I am a god, and you will worship me, and you worship me through your taxes, and you worship me through your sacrifices, and so on and so forth. It wasn't a culture that was specifically or very, very friendly to Christian belief. It was very unfriendly to Christian morality. It was very unChristian, to Christian, uh, un, unfriendly to Christian worship. And so they experienced persecution. So they had two problems in the church. They had the problem of false teaching, a bunch of immature believers gathered together to be a church. And then the second one was that they were living in a political system that was not friendly to their beliefs. In fact, the believers in Crete faced persecution. They faced imprisonment. They face the loss of their property and their money if they worship Jesus over worshiping Caesar. So in a lot of ways, the Cretan church is very much like our church today. And it's, it's a similar world. The world is changing, folks. I don't know if you've noticed. We used to say we lived in a Christian country, but we can't say that anymore. Our culture has shifted away from Christian values and Christian beliefs. And we have two responses. We can be really angry about it. Or we can actually go to God's word and say, how then shall we live in the midst of a culture who is now putting up rules and regulations and, and putting forth authority that is counter to God's rule, that is counter to God's morality, that is counter to God's beliefs, and counter, to God's, or counter to God's ways. How do we do it? The believers in Crete, just like us, were giving, being given parts of a story about their future. They were were asked to choose, which way are you going to live? If you're going to live for Jesus, your future is going to look pretty awful. But if you choose to live for Caesar, then your future is bright. And we're also given those same stories. We choose to follow Jesus. We choose to to go in his way. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face struggles and trials of all kinds. Which way will we choose? And to top it all off, being a young church, they didn't have these seasoned believers around them. So Paul has to send Titus. And Titus has to come in and actually, you know, try to pastor these people through it. A young man pastoring brand new Christians. And after a while, Titus is just really struggling. I really identify with Titus. To come into a church and say, hey, you're supposed to take and help these people. What Paul said in verse 2-1 is to grow them into maturity. You know, teach them all a sound doctrine. Teach them all the right things. Help them to understand how we should live. And Titus is trying and he's trying and he's trying. But Paul hears it ain't working out. So he writes a letter to him. It's a super short but very dense letter, and it does many, many things. First of all, it gives legitimacy to Paul's leadership and to Titus as a pastor. It corrects some bad theology, and it encourages the church. But above all, Paul wants to challenge the narrative that these people are listening to. He wants to challenge the stories that they're being sold, the, the, the narrative of Rome, the narrative of fear that you're going to face imprisonment, that you're going to face the loss of property or your family. And his letter goes on the attack right away. Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea that I want you to take this morning. And this is what Paul is bringing in these first few verses of of Titus chapter 1. He says this, Do not live in fear, but rather live in grace and peace that is given to you through your faith in Jesus. Let's look at how Paul does that. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I want you to underline that word faith. Paul is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, some of us translate that to mean that the faith is the church. The faith is the belief system. Paul wants to correct the belief system of the people. But that's not what this says. It says it's for the faith of the elect. Those who are chosen by God and following in his ways. Those who have chosen Jesus... Paul wants to encourage their faith, their specific faith, the individual person's faith, you and me and everybody in between. He wants to encourage and lift us up in our faith. He goes on in verse four to call Titus his true child in the common faith, both giving Titus legitimacy, but also underscoring his point. Paul isn't writing a letter to correct that theology or, or uh, to, to say, how do you live in a culture that is not favorable to your religion? Right out of the gate, Paul is saying, the problem with the church in Crete, the problem with the church in America is not Rome. It's not our political system. It's not our bad candidates or our good candidates. The problem with the church is a faith problem. All the way in the back. There we go. Just one person, though. (laughs) Because the rest of us are like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because that's where I'm at. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. As I was reading this, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. My problem isn't my problem isn't I don't have a person to vote for. My problem isn't I have the right person to vote for. My problem isn't my system, my structures. My problem isn't my government. My problem is my faith. Paul goes right at it. It's your faith that he is writing for the sake of building up the faith. And he is sending somebody who has a common faith in order to deal with a problem of faith. For the sake of faith. What is faith? Faith is is confidence that God is going to do what God says he's going to do, even when it's not clear how or when. Let me say that again, and I'm going to say it again later. That faith is confidence that God is going to do what he says he is going to do, even when it's not clear how or when. The clearest explanation of faith was written by an unknown author in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews was dealing with a very similar problem in in the, the culture of the Hebrew church. And it was the political situation was nearly identical because it was all ruled by Rome at that time. People were buying into a fear, a narrative of fear regarding their future, due to what they saw around them. So, Romans or Hebrews 11 and 12 is a famous pair of chapters where this idea of faith is best described. So, let's jump over there real briefly and take a look at it. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, and I'm going to be reading snippets and pieces of it because I want to, I want you to, I want to draw a line through it, or pull a thread through. So the person who wrote this also, just like Paul, just jumps right in. He says this, Hebrews 11:1. Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Again, faith is that confidence, that assurance, that deep belief that what we hope for, the things that God says were going to happen, the things that we put our hope in, that the future is going to turn out right, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him, that those things are going to happen. It's a conviction, even though we can't see it. A belief that it's going to happen, even though we don't see it coming. Now, when he or she or he or she uh, takes our attention back to the past, instead of looking looking at our situation now, it goes backwards. It says this, verse two: For by for by it by faith, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old are specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Abraham received a promise from God that his children would outnumber the stars, and that they would be blessed and be a blessing to all nations. If you knew their stories. And if you do know their stories, you'll know that that's not at all what they experienced. Abraham was very old when he received this promise, and he received the promise of Isaac, which was just a deposit of that. He had one son in his old, old age. That was not a number of children that outnumbered the stars. And if you look at how he, his life worked out, in fact, if you look at how his sin even worked out, he was a liar, he self-protected, you would see that he wasn't a blessing to all nations. In fact, frequently he was a burden to many nations. Isaac and Jacob had the same story. It wasn't until we get to Jacob until we see that Jacob had 12 kids and then those 12 kids had kids. And at that point, they still weren't outnumbering the stars. They were just a small nation. And eventually that small nation goes into slavery in Egypt. This is not a blessing. I mean, maybe it's a blessing to the Egyptians. Hey, free labor, right? Is that the kind of blessing God intended for us? And in the midst of that, they began to see that God was going to send a deliverer, a helper, somebody to rescue them from from their situation and their plight. And for thousands of years, this group of people, the Israelites, lived in hope of this promise. In fact, the writer of Hebrews begins to describe what, what's called the intertestamental period. There's about 400 years that takes place between the last Old Testament book and the first New Testament book. If you don't know your Bible, this is a really cool period. The Catholics have a couple of books in their version of the Bible that talk about it. They don't consider it necessarily scriptural level. Um, but there are histories and there's stories about what happened. And here's what the author of Hebrews says about that about them. Verse uh, 13, But all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Though they didn't receive the promise, they lived in faith, knowing that God kept his promise. Now let's jump down to verse 35. The writer moves forward in time again. Okay, this is the intertestamental period. This is what, what I just said was about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lived in faith. Now the intertestamental period, he says this: Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Some, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. It's it grisly, doesn't it? They were killed with a sword, and they went about with skins of she- uh, sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated because of their faith. They lost everything. These people were living in faith, not just for Abraham's promise, but for the promise of a promised Savior, a Messiah, someone to come and complete and fulfill the promise of Abraham. But not only did they not see the completion of that promise, they received death. Horrible death. The author of Hebrews goes on in verse 38. and This is like one of the most awe-inspiring, awe-filled statements, I think, in all of Scripture. This is what the author of Hebrews says of those people. looking forward to a promise being fulfilled but did not see it and died in faith he says of whom the world is not worthy." the person writing this was looking backward on people of faith people who lived in the past and he was inspired to awe what inspired his awe? was it their deaths? no look at the next verse, 39 all of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. It was not the, the fulfillment of the promise that inspired awe. It was their faith. Their faith, their confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, even when they couldn't see it coming true. Even when they couldn't see the end of it. It was their faith. Paul said it this way to Titus in 1-2. He says, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promises before the ages began. God never lies is always true. And when he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look at all of these people that we've had in the past, all the Old Testament fathers, all the people who lived after them, the people that were in bondage in Egypt, the people who suffered exile, the people who lived in the intertestamental period, who were being sawn in two and broken apart and everything was taken away when the world was its worst. And when the political situation was against them utterly, they stood in hope and it was awe-inspiring. There was once a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring to the people around him. There was once a version of faith. I saw it in the early church. I saw it in the ancient fathers. Where has it gone? Where has it gone? There was once a version of faithfulness to God that caught people's attention and they couldn't take their eyes off of them. They kept watching them and kept seeing them. They're like, I don't agree with what you do on Sunday. That's kind of weird. I don't agree with some of these beliefs. I'm going to go worship the Roman emperor. I'm going to go worship this or that. But I can't take my eyes off you because you keep serving not just your own sick, you're not just your own poor, but you keep serving our poor as well. You keep loving our poor. You keep taking in the destitute and the broken and the lonely. You keep bringing them into the fold. I can't take my eyes off of that. It's fascinating and it's awe-inspiring. And over time, the people grew and grew and grew. The church grew and grew and grew. And this people of faith was made of men and women and children and slaves and slave owners and rich people and poor people, people of different races and colors and creeds, people from inside groups, people from outside on the margins. And it's why we're here today, because those people lived faithfully in the hope of what God was going to do in them and through them. And it was awe-inspiring believers of the past, they were looking forward to the promise being fulfilled without seeing it, without knowing how it was going to work out, and they were faithful. But we stand on the other side of the fulfillment of that promise, on the other side of the cross, where Jesus died for us. And we look backward, and then we look up at our system, we look at our candidates, and we're should be the most fearless, the most confident, the most humble people on the whole planet because of how God fulfilled his promise in Jesus for us. Because Not because of what God is going to do, but because of what God already did. These men and women were looking forward in history to something that they couldn't see or imagine. And they believed the story that God was telling, not the story that Rome was telling, not the story that Egypt was telling, not the story that Hillary is telling or that Donald Trump is telling. They believed in the story that God was telling. Faith, confidence that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, even when it's not clear how or when. And this confidence extended not just to believe, but to, uh, to faith in what God keeping his promise, but to its timing being perfect. Look at this, Verse 40 since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's Hebrews. They believed, the people of old believed that the promise was not fulfilled because God had something better. That the promise was not fulfilled because God had something better. He was still working on the plan, perfecting it, making it great. And that included you and me. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Paul said to Titus, at just the proper time, at the right moment, God manifested his word through the preaching. I have been entrusted with. At just the right moment, God fulfilled his promise in Jesus. At just the right moment, God sent Paul to Crete to preach the gospel and to lead people to salvation through faith. At just the right moment, somebody came to you and preached the gospel that told you about Jesus at just the right moment. Two moments before, you wouldn't have been ready. Two, three moments before, you wouldn't have been ready. But at just the right moment, God's salvation came to you. His timing is always perfect. At just the right moment, God fulfills his promises. But the people, do, uh, but the people do who Hebrews was written, and the people of Crete that Paul was encouraging, and even us today, we look backwards at the promises and at the fulfillment of Jesus, and we still look at our situation and live in fear. Our circumstances shake us. Our, stu- our troubles at home shake us. They draw our attention away from God. We get angry at God. We get angry at our situation. We get angry at our kids. We get fearful of of our finances we get fearful of our jobs we get fearful that things are ever going to be well and we're looking back at the promise being fulfilled now our world would take something like that and say you know what you should be ashamed of yourselves you should be ashamed of yourselves for being shaken when you have such firm foundation to stand on you should be ashamed and there's this great cloud of witnesses, right? That's what Hebrews calls them. These people of faith who died without seeing the promise fulfilled. They've got them to look at, and yet you are fearful and a cat, and you're sticking your head in a hole. But Paul and the author of Hebrews both take us in a completely different direction. A completely different direction. Rather than buying into the narrative of our world that says we should live in fear, or the narrative of our world that says we should wallow in our shame for living in fear, they take us and they say we should not look at our, our circumstances with fear, but we should look at him with faith and allow God to keep his promises. The God who never lies, and into the future, a living hope, eternal life, which God who never lies promised us before the ages began. How do we look to the future hoping in this second resurrection? How do we look to the future hoping for heaven? How do we live that? Look at Hebrews again, chapter twelve, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us hide, whine, complain, hoard our resources just in case, put our Bibles in a drawer, build a bomb shelter, purchase ammunition, blame the cops, blame the president, blame the teachers, blame our parents, blame the candidates. Demand our right. Build the wall. Tax the rich. Play it safe. Find somebody to sue. Take back our country. Make it great again. Pray that Jesus returns so that we don't have to suffer. Did I miss anyone? I stole that straight from Andy Stanley, who I'll talk about in a minute. That's how he said recently about this passage. Can you imagine how we sound to the great cloud of witnesses? Can you imagine how we sound to them? Okay, forget them for a second. Can you imagine how we sound to the Christians in Syria? Or the Christians who are no longer in Syria but who are living in camps that are being torn down all over the world because they've been driven out of Syria by because of their faith, and they're now considered terrorists. Christian Syrians now considered terrorists. Driven out of their own country. Can you imagine how we sound to them? Or how about the Christians in Iraq or Afghanistan or Russia? where they are actively being persecuted for their faith. Can you imagine how we sound right now? So how do we live in hope right now? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because of the example of others and the fulfillment of God's promises, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I absolutely love and hate this illustration because running to me is a lot like oysters. I've tried them both, and I'm not sold, okay? Heidi has tried tricking me into both of these things, okay? With the oysters, she nearly threw up, and but she held it down until I got one down, and she's like, whoa, and I'm like, whoa, you know, and we're like, and she's still trying with running, okay? She's she's like, it's great. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like Woody Allen. I it, With oysters, I kind of want my food dead, not sick, not wounded, but I want it dead. Um, and running feels to me like it might make me food for something else. I might actually die if I run. So, I'm not a real big fan of running. So, I actually would say I don't know a whole lot about running. But what I do know about running is this. It's a whole lot more difficult when you're carrying something heavy. We need to take off some weight, ladies and gentlemen, is what Paul says, or the author of Hebrews says. Take off some weight. The weight of the world that is on our shoulders, the weight of our sin, the weight of our cares and concerns, we need to take and give them to Jesus. So that we can run with endurance or perseverance. Hebrews teaches us that the life of a Christian in this world, it's not a sprint toward death. Some Christians in, in, the, in this time frame, they were like, hey, martyrdom, martyrdom is really awesome. Martyrs get a special place in heaven. They sit right next to Jesus. I have an idea. Let's fling ourselves into the Colosseum and see how many lions can kill us. This is exciting and fun. We'll all be martyrs. But the author of Hebrews would say, no, 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 no. That's not. That's not the point point isn't to race toward martyrdom it's to live a life for christ that runs with endurance it's running a cross-country race through the woods there's going to be hills there's going to be dark forests filled with flying monkeys but we we are not to focus on these things don't look at the flying monkeys don't look at the apple trees throwing their apples at you keep on the yellow big road keep following the faith keep growing keep moving toward jesus until the end, until God fulfills his promises in you and through you, until you've come to the end of your life, run the race, with no hindrances, and with perseverance. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, we overcome anxiety, fear, through perseverance. When the world is coming apart around us, we're throwing off hindrances. We're throwing off sin that entangles us around our feet instead of blaming and being critical, instead of worrying about who's in charge of our country or which, which uh, people are going to get elected to the Supreme Court, instead of worrying about any of these things, look in the mirror at yourself and ask this question, what is holding you back for living fearlessly in of me, Jesus? What are you holding on to that is not Jesus? Why does your life, why does your life not inspire awe, faith in other people. How can it? The reality is the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. My district supervisor said that. The more uncertain things get, the more the certainty of the faith shines brighter. It becomes more attractive. People can't take their eyes off. Them. Thirdly, Hebrews teaches us to fix our eyes on Jesus. We run the race with our eyes fixed on the finish line, not on our moments. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Whenever I try running, my strategy is to try to take my mind off the of running. Like, I try to think about anything. I'm like, that's, that's okay. I got to get some good music. I got to get the loudest music I can and so I don't feel it. Or maybe if I can get a book and read a book, that's really difficult though when you're running up and down, you know, that's really tough. Look out the window because I'm on a treadmill. I'll think about anything. I'll, like, think about my sermon. I'll think about my family. I'll think about my wife. My wife doesn't even distract me when I'm running. It's just, oh, I just got to think about something. I try to think about anything but the running. But the author of Hebrews says, don't be distracted by all of those things. Just run. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the finish line. Remember, heaven is ahead of you. Remember that your redemption is happening here and now. That the cross has paid all of that debt you were moving towards something glorious. Keep running with your eyes on the prize. Now, Pastor Andy Stanley, again, uh, he's a pastor in Atlanta, and I took this from his sermon as well. Rob Crossler shared this with me, and I was so convicted by it, I had to share it with you. He was recently speaking on the subject of politics, uh, and he said said this, and I'm just going to say it as though I'm saying it to you, but no, these aren't my original words, but I believe this is actually God's words. People over 40, many of you have grown weary. You've lost heart. The reason is that you have fixed your eyes on a political system. You are holding on to a past that you feel God blessed, and you see a future that seems devoid of God. You are growing weary, and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why. Because you're scaring the children. Friends, if if you're living in fear of the outcome of this election, You have a faith problem. But instead, I mean, we should be living in in hope and in faith. Instead of living in hope and faith, I mean, you guys, you're the living embodiment of faith. You are the living embodiment of the great cloud of witnesses. You and me, us over 40. The children are looking to us for how they should be responding and reacting and living in this world. And when we're living in fear, we are scaring the kids. And we're telling them that there is a godless future ahead of us. And that is the biggest lie we will ever tell the younger generation. That was me, not him. Faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. With me. Now that's him. Last last second. That that was him. This is me. People over 40 don't expect this world to provide any of that which only God can provide. Mature in your faith. Grow up, people over 40. You have a faith problem. You are scared of this election. I have a faith problem. I, so I, I, my, wife, my wife's like, we've been talking about this at home. You're like, I, I say this all the time. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what happens if so-and-so is elected. I'm afraid of what happens if if the other so-and-so is elected. Neither of those things is a statement of faith. My hope is not in the United States of America. My hope is in Jesus Christ. So, people over 40, we have a faith in God. faith in God who is good, and can be trusted to provide every good thing. As the author of Hebrews said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame is seated at the right hand of the throne of God don't take your eyes off of Jesus people under 40 you are not exempt the story of our political system wants us to believe that our human systems can bring salvation that they can save us from the future of the other candidate it looks like health care protecting us from sickness it looks like social security it looks like national security from all enemies foreign and domestic. It looks like a protection of our rights and liberties. But history teaches us that these things come and these things go. We have a faith in a God who is good and trusted at all times. So people under 40, follow me as I call Christ. People under 40, have faith. Grow in your faith. Mature in your faith. Let it be the solid ground that you build your life on. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Not because of the candidates, not because of the economy, not because of the persecution or suffering or the various voices of our culture promising certain things in the future. Keep your eyes on Jesus and find that we are promised in this life Him. My true child in the common faith. Here's what Paul says we receive in Jesus in the here and now grace and peace from God the Father Jesus Christ our Savior. Grace and peace. This is what we are given in Jesus for the here and now. Grace and peace. Grace, it's this daily sense of an undeserved, unearned favor from God this daily walking sense that you have peace with God reconciled relationship with God that's what was given to you in Christ Jesus you have it now you don't have to wait for heaven for it you don't have to wait till the, the right president is elected you have it now grace and peace peace is inner stability in the face of outward instability when everything around you is shaking and rocking and coming apart inside you're solid you're secure now these things are not just something that you get Something that you get to give. Paul says to Timothy, grace and peace to you. Paul is giving, or not Timothy, to Titus. To Titus. He is giving to Titus grace and peace. It's something that we extend to one another. We extend to people who are fearful in the midst of our political situation. It's something that the people over 40 extend to the people under 40. It's something that parents extend to their children. It's something that co-workers extend to difficult co-workers grace and peace. We lived in this grace and peace as children of the common faith. Our lives be awe and inspiring. When the world around us is shaken, when the world around us is trembling in fear, when the world around us is buying ammunition or buying up gold and getting rid of dollars, when the world around us is looking for Social Security to fix the future or Obamacare or whatever, faith says, God is in control and I live in grace now and I live in peace now and I extend grace and peace to others. Our response to the world around us is not to be fearful but to experience grace. Everything is a gift that we cannot earn. and we receive and experience peace inner stability in the midst of an unstable situation, back to Hebrews, let us run with perseverance. You don't back down. You don't check out you don't give up, you don't live in fear, and you run the race that is set before us, not for the race that was written to the people in Hebrews, not for the people in Afghanistan or Pakistan, but the people right here, right now, the race that is for you, Ivan, the race that is for you, Kathy, the race that is for you, Derek, the race that is for you, Doug, for each one of us, the race that was given to us in our specific historical context, in this moment, in this place, in this town, in this church, we have a prophetic voice. In our world today, a message to communicate, a way to live that it brings hope, that brings life, that brings peace, that brings grace. So the question is, what is keeping you from living? Throw off the hindrances. fix our eyes on the wrong things, safety, security, hope of political figure, a system, a flag, if we fix our eyes on those things, we will not be able to run with endurance. Because then we know the monkeys are coming after us. We will not be able to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We will fail to live out our responsibility to be a light now. To be a people of God, to live faith in such a way that it inspires awe in the high school, that it inspires awe in the middle school, that it inspires awe at the university, that it inspires awe at the the local workplaces, we will fail if we take our eyes off of Jesus. So my question for you as we close this morning. That's the elephant in the room. It's not not what you vote for. It's what are your eyes fixed on. It's not who's going to be Supreme Court justices. It's who are your eyes fixed on. What is hindering you? What is keeping you back? What are you really afraid of? I want to sing this song as our closing song. Because today... want you to ask that question and the next time you fear, feel fear I want you to say to yourself wait a minute what am I looking at? Who am I looking at? Who is really saving me? And I want this chorus to come into your mind give me faith, I trust what you say that you're good, That your love for me is great I'm broken inside Lord I give you my life, all I have I speak would you stand with me as we sing this?